The reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. This is found on page 976 and 977 in the Pew Bible. We'd also ask if you don't have a Bible, please take one home as a gift from us. So again, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace, he must reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being himself, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jake and Kelly. Um, Jake and Kelly, along with Brian and Cindy Dore, um, have been serving on that Reach KC team for, like they said, for five months, and they've been to a lot of meetings and done a lot of hard work uh, to bring us to this point of being able to make that announcement this morning. So thank you, Jake and Kelly, for uh, this morning, certainly for sharing, but also for the, the work that you've put in um, over the, the last several months. Well, um, like I said earlier, my name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and I'm really delighted uh, that you're here this morning, that you're worshiping uh, with us as a congregation this morning. And if you are newer, I just want to give you a little bit of a sense of where we're at, what we're doing uh, this morning. And uh, we're in the middle of this series, a three-week series in the book of Ephesians, um, written by the Apostle Paul to a a church in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. And in this letter, Paul is reminding these Ephesian Christians, this local church, why the local church matters, why it's such a big deal in God's plan and what he's doing in the world. He's helping them and us to keep the big why in focus. Why church? Why does this matter? What's the big why? And what we saw last week is that the big why of the local church is that there is hope here. There's hope here. And so as we look at this this passage this morning, um, let's ask that God would help us to understand in in new ways, in fresh ways, the hope that resides here, not not just in Christ's community, but in the local church, in local churches all over our city, all over the world. So let's pray. Father, guide us by your word and by your spirit, that in your light we may see light, and in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, last week we saw that there is hope for me. There's hope here in the local church, and there's hope for me. The local church is entrusted with the story that knows me, the story that rescues me, the story that includes me, the story of the gospel. 
there's hope for me here, hope for you here. But this is not just a story about me's, not just a story about individuals. It's a story about an us, an us that God is making. But us is hard. I mean, me, me is easy, easy enough. But us, us is really hard. Right? I mean, we live in a, an undivided country. We're, we're divided by politics and class. And we feel that during this election season, don't we? And Bill Bishop, in his book written a few years ago called The Big Sort, he argues that Americans have sorted themselves geographically, economically, politically into like-minded communities over the, the past three decades, from the 1970s or so on, that we've sort of self-selected into living near those who are like us. We live in a divided country. We live in a divided city, divided by a, a state line into Missouri and Kansas, divided by a, a river into north and south, uh, divided by a strip of pavement known as Truist Avenue by race and income and safety. And it can feel hopeless. One article I read in The Economist about the book, The Big Sort. They were interviewing people about that book and Bishop's research, and it included this quote from a woman, and she said she did spend time with people who were different from her. And she, kind of a smile came across her face, and she said, yeah, I do spend time with people that are different. We respect each other's views. We hate each other cordially. And sometimes that feels like the best we can do, doesn't it? Just to, to hate one another cordially. Sometimes that feels like the best we can do. But we're not the first ones to, to be ripped apart, to be polarized, to be separated from one another by divisions, by walls of hostility. Because when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he's writing to a group of people who as a group should not exist. Uh, from a human perspective, the church in Ephesus, Ephesus should never have happened but it did. I mean, there were, there were Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles, together in the same church family. From a human perspective, that should have never happened for two reasons. One, Jews and Gentiles just didn't, they were kept separate, they didn't interact with one another. Two, Jews and Gentiles together are gathering to worship a crucified Messiah. It, I mean, no Jew would have ever done that. Gentiles had no category for that. But maybe if he was risen from the dead, there was really something here. So how did a group of people who were actively hostile to one another, separated by culture and race and tradition, leave behind all of that stuff, their own traditions, their own kind of family identities, and start gathering together in the same assembly, the same local church? How does that happen? Because there's hope here. There's hope here. There's hope for us. There's hope here in the local church because this is the one place where anybody can become family. There's hope here because only here can anybody become family. This, the local church is not just a place where people who are like one another can become friends. It's not even a place where people who are different from one another can come together to sort of hate one another cordially. 
No, the church is a place where anybody can become family. So why the local church? Because there's hope here. Hope for me and hope for us. Or, or maybe even more precisely, hope for an us. Not, not just divided me's, but an us. A unity. That's what God has designed the local church to be. That's what it should be. But no local church, not even one planted by the Apostle Paul, does this flawlessly. And so he writes to them to encourage them, to encourage us to live more fully into God's design of being a place where anybody can become family. So if we're going to be a local church where anybody can become family, we must do three things. We must remember first the pain of separation We have to remember the pain of separation. Second, we have to embrace the pain of unity, the pain that's required to really be unified, to really be in us. And then third, we have to celebrate what God is building. So we want to be this kind of place where anybody can become family. We have to remember the pain of separation, embrace the pain of unity, and celebrate what God is building So first, Paul shows us that if the local church is going to be a place where anybody can become family, we have to remember the pain of separation. First, the pain of separation from God and the pain of being separated from one another. And if you think about what the consequence, what the, the outcome of sin is in the world, our rebellion against God, at its most fundamental level, the consequence of sin is separation, division, hostility between human beings and God, between human beings and one another. Separation is what sin does. Ultimately, hell is separation. In one of my all-time favorite Lewis books, The Great Divorce, uh, C.S. Lewis depicts hell as a place where people are forever moving further and further away from one another until they are utterly alone. So he paints this picture of hell as kind of this city, and people, they'll get into arguments and fights, and then they just move away. And they slowly move further and further away from everyone until they are just utterly alone by themselves, isolated. And that's who all of us were apart from Christ. Separated from God, separated from one another. We have to remember that reality. Paul writes in verse 12, that's where we all started. He says, remember, verse 12, that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, the reason that Paul is saying all this is because there is this increasing hostility between Jews and Gentiles within the church And if you know anything about it, which you may not know anything about it all, but Jews and Gentiles did not play well together. The the Jews had spent a lot of time separating themselves from Gentiles. And Gentiles in the Roman Empire this time really felt like the Jews were just this kind of odd religious cultural minority. Um, They did not get along. They didn't spend time together. And so in the church, there was always this danger, and you see this all throughout the New Testament, of a very clear and present us-them divide that could happen amongst these two groups of people who were supposed to be united in the local church. And Paul is writing to respond to this issue. But notice what Paul does. Notice how he approaches this. He doesn't rebuke them outright and say, you need to be more unified. 
He doesn't tell them they're being bad and to try harder. What does he do? He takes them down memory lane, and he reminds them of the story of the gospel again. He reminds them of their broken past. He reminds them that they were separated from God. He reminds them, as we saw last week, earlier in chapter 2, and he elaborates more here, that they were dead in their sin. They were separated from Christ, alienated from God's promise, without hope in the world. That's where every single one of us, Jew or Gentile alike, that's where we start. And that's why Paul calls them, that's why we must remember the pain of separation. He's leveling the playing field. No one has any place to boast or to have any kind of pride, no place to say, I'm better than you or I'm way above you. Because when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to a relationship with God, none of us has a head start. All of us, our beginning point is a place of separation. We were all enemies of God at one point without hope. See, there's no room in the church for a kind of us-them or you-me division. Because the church is a place where anybody, anybody can become family. Because all of us were unlikely. None of us was in a place where we were likely to believe in Jesus. We were all separated. That's who we were. Separated from God, separated from one another. No hope. So that's verse 12. Then we come to verse 13, and there's another massive contrast that Paul draws. Last week, we saw this giant contrast that Paul drew in the first part of chapter 2. It was in verse 4. He outlined this this awful story of who we are apart from Christ. And then in verse 4, but God. Two amazing words in the Bible. But God did all of this to rescue you. And the same pattern Paul repeats here. Verse 12, you were separated. Verse 13, but now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility and might reconcile us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. In place of separation now, there's oneness, unity, wholeness. But this unity, it's painful. It's not easy. Because again, Paul is talking about how the church, where two different races, two different ethnic identities of people, two different types of people who are completely at odds with one another, actually become one family. And what does Paul do, though, to make this point of how that happens? Well, he spends his entire time talking about the cross, about the blood of Jesus being shed on the cross. That's the language that he uses here in chapter 2. Now, I bet Paul's first readers in some ways had the same problem that we do, and that is that we tend to think of of family and love in sort of ideal terms, that that love is easy, it's a warm, fuzzy feeling, but Paul is reminding them that no, that love is a cross, that the highest expression of love in in the universe is a man dying on the cross for his enemies. Love is fraught with pain and sacrifice, yes, joy, 
But it's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's a cross. Researcher and popular TED Talk speaker Brené Brown tells the story of how you know, she'd grown up going to church but had left the church for a long period of time, but she's recently come back to the local church, and I don't know all of her story, but she talks about this journey of returning to church, and it was in the midst of a season of really great pain for her and, and kind of breakdown, and she went back to church hoping that the church would take the pain away. The way that she puts it, and I love the the metaphor that she uses, she said, I hoped that the the church would be an epidural, but she said, instead, I found that the church was a midwife. See, we are a community that embraces the pain that's required for unity, not not one that seeks to, to be numb from that pain. When Brené went to the, the pastor of the church and she was processing with this, the, the pastor said to her, he said, forgiveness is never easy. There has to be blood on the floor for there to be forgiveness. There has to be blood shed for forgiveness. Ultimately, Christ on the cross for every single one of us. But that's what allows the church to be a place where anybody can become family. Because we're now all in a place of being able to look around at the person who's sitting next to us in the pew and say, if Jesus if they are worthy of Jesus' blood being shed, then they're worthy of mine as well. They're worthy of me sacrificing for them, of embracing the pain of what it means to be one together. The church is the one place where anybody can become family. And that means that if you like everybody here at church, then we're doing something wrong. Because there should be people here that on a purely human level, you should not like. That you should be surrounded by people on a regular basis when you come to church with, on a, from a human standpoint that there's no other reason than that because of the gospel of Jesus here in this church that you would ever spend time with them. That you wouldn't ordinarily know You see, if there's no one here in this room this morning at Christ Community who's planning to vote for Donald Trump, then we're doing something wrong because those people need the gospel. If there's no one, if there's no one here this morning who's planning to vote for Hillary Clinton, we're doing something wrong because those people need the gospel. If there's no one here planning to root for the Broncos, We're doing something wrong because those people really need the gospel. You see, all people need the gospel. And so if there aren't all kinds of people here, then we're doing something wrong. And if we aren't, the problem isn't the gospel, it's us. It's me, my unwillingness to embrace the pain, to embrace the pain of what it takes to be unified. So how can we embrace the pain? Well, two quick ideas. Uh, First is to join a community group. Because if you like everyone here at church, maybe we're doing something wrong, or maybe you just don't actually really know anyone here. I mean, it's easy to like everybody when you don't don't actually know anybody. But join a community group. Spend some time. Really get to know other people. You'll probably find that not everyone is easy to get along with as you thought. And that's a good thing. That means the gospel's at work. Join a community where you're actually doing life together, 
where you're sharing the painful stuff, the hard stuff. Second, um, participate. This is an easy thing. Participate in the race to Unite KC on October 8th. This is a, it's a 5K race that's happening on truce. It's the first of its kind. Um, it's put on by Fellowship of Christian Athletes. As many of you know, if you've been in Kansas City, that Truce Avenue has historically represented the dividing line between racial and socioeconomic classes in Kansas City. And although it's, I mean, it's literally just a paved road, it represents a boundary, a massive cavern in our city. And then the community, a dividing wall of hostility. And the goal of this race is just to have people actually on that line together, seeing it and committing with one another to heal that divide. So I'm, I'm going to be running that. Um, a number of our other staff are going to be running it. I've, I've challenged Paul Brandis to actually to beat me in that race if he can. Um, and I actually know for a fact that Paul's been doing a lot more training than me, so I really need to step it up if I'm going to have any chance of that actually me beating him. Um, and this is also something that we're doing with our sister church, Christian Fellowship. So they are also inviting uh, their congregation along with a number of other local churches in Kansas City to be a part of this race, to join together. So let's come out on that day as, as a church united to literally trample on a dividing wall of hostility in our city. And you can get more information uh, at metrocityfca.org if you want to sign up to run. You can also, maybe you say, I don't run, Bill. That's fine. You can walk. Um, you can volunteer. Or you can just come. There's going to be a rally at the park afterwards um, to show unity as we join with brothers and sisters from multiple local churches across the city black and white, rich and poor, to embrace the pain of unity. Because we have to see the pain to be able to embrace it. And it isn't easy. It, sh- it shouldn't be easy. Actually, it can't be easy if we're doing it right. I mean, think about it. If you're training for your first 5K, if you're training for your first marathon, and, and you think, oh, this is cake you're probably not training hard enough. You're not doing it right. It should be hard. Embracing the pain, it's not easy. But it's good. It's worth it. And when we begin to even get a tiny glimpse of what can be, we can't deny the beauty of what God is doing. Take a look. What led to us coming to Christ Community? So we were looking for a church that was well-rounded, something that fit the entire family. After one service, our daughter came running upstairs and said, we have to join this church. This is the church that we need to join. Let me tell you what I learned today. I just remember it like I just walked through the doors that day we visited. And he just said, what's your name? Let's go to lunch. What stuck with Wesley was the fact that he was able to build relationships with men that didn't look like him. And we went to this Italian restaurant and he just opened up about race and about where we was as a church, what the church has been praying for and just praying for more diversity and saying how our families is an answer from God, just coming to that church. And just for the fact that we just had a very comfortable conversation about race just from the start. That was the start of our relationships, just this being tremendously great. I have built 
some really great relationships with some really awesome women. And the cool thing is, it's not just even at the Brookside campus. I have friends that go to the Leewood campus and the Olathe campus and the downtown campus, and they're all different races, Chinese, black, white, Samoan. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, we're all friends and we are all working together to encourage one another and just to help each other learn how to operate in these things as daughters of the king. So my relationship went from visiting to these are my brothers that I've shared personal things with, and I love them to death. One thing that I really admire in terms of unity in the church and being that starting place is that Pastor Bill Gorman is not afraid to address it. He stands up there in front of a predominantly white congregation and fearlessly gives biblical truth. I respect him a lot for that because a lot of churches, whether it's black or white, aren't touching it. And he does it in a way that resonates with people, with the injustices that have happened. I had more women come up to me and just cry and say, Carissa, I am so ignorant to these things. I truly just don't know because I don't have to live in that experience and I'm sorry for that. And I never feel like you have to apologize to a person of color just because you're white, you know? But I think that it's awesome that it's resonating with people and it's making, it's making them ask questions and want the veil to be lifted. So not long ago, me and um, a couple of the brothers from church, John and Anthony, with another couple, we went to Legacy in Chicago, which is a hip hop conference, but it's also just a discipleship conference. And just going to that conference and us being able to, to bond together, get to know each other, and just us showing that authentic love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We sat, we, we prayed, we talked about, about race issues, and from that trip, just coming back from Legacy, that's been a life-changing experience. And that picture is like the, it's like the perfect picture to show what unity looks like in the church. Black and white brothers and sisters just hugged up, linked up, and showing everybody that we love each other authentically. Yeah. This is, this is what God is building. We can't do that. This is what God is building. If we're going to be the kind of church where anybody can become family, then we have to see the grand picture of what God is building, what he's making us into, and to celebrate that. And this is what Apostle, the Apostle Paul goes on in these final verses of chapter 2 to do. He's, he's showing us the goal, the end to which he's breaking down these walls of hostility between us and God and between one another. Because you see, from the very beginning, God had a grand plan, and he's continuing to work it out from the very beginning. And the plan is this, that, that he would have a people living in his presence, God's people living in God's presence, in God's place, following God's ways for God's glory. That's what God is doing in the world. That's what he's building. Now, I want you to stay with me here for a moment, because I'm going to walk you through the entire Bible in about 60 seconds. 
And we're going to see this theme of what God is doing to build a place where His presence can dwell with His people. Because you see, when God created the world, He placed Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, in the Garden of Eden. You see, the Garden of Eden, it was the first temple, the original temple, the place where God's presence dwelled and where His people met with Him and walked with Him and talked with Him. But as we are painfully aware, we don't live in Eden anymore. Because of our rebellion, because of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, we were cast out. But God is unrelenting in his love. And he continues to pursue this goal of a people with his presence in his place, living his way for his glory. And so you fast forward in the story, and now we're at Moses. Moses is this leader that God raised up to lead his people out of Egypt. And God has his people make a a tabernacle. Basically, it's it's a giant tent, a portable temple where his presence dwells with his people once again. They come and they offer sacrifices and they're able to have a relationship with God, his presence dwelling with his people. Now fast forward again in the story and we're at King David and King Solomon, his son. And God promises David that there will be a temple, a building, no longer just a tent, but a physical, permanent kind of structure that will serve as the temple, the place where God's presence will dwell among his people, where they'll offer sacrifices, where God's presence will be among his people. And Solomon builds that temple. But once again, God's people rebel, and they're cast out of the land. The temple's destroyed. But God's unrelenting in his love, and he brings them back to the land. Notice a pattern here. They rebuild the temple. Now fast forward again, this time all the way to Jesus. And Jesus comes on the scene, and he claims to be the true and better temple, to actually replace the temple that now in his body, he says, is the temple, that I, Jesus says, I am the place where God's presence dwells on earth, that I actually am God, the tabernacling, it says in John 1, among you, that the place where God's presence dwells is in me, and that you don't have to offer sacrifices anymore because I am the ultimate, once for all, true and better sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. And now fast forward one last time to the end of the story. Revelation chapter 21 reads this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. That at the end of the Bible, we get this picture of a new heavens and a new earth where the entire world now, all of creation is a temple. Isaiah says the the glory of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, covers the earth like the waters cover the sea, that every inch of creation is now a temple. God's presence dwelling with his people everywhere. But what about now? Between Jesus being here physically on earth and the new heavens and the new earth, where does God's presence dwell now? Where do God's people commune with God now? Listen to Ephesians 2.22. In him, in Christ, you, the local church, are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see that? Do we get that, what God is doing with us, what he's building? Through the pain, through through our pain, through Christ's pain on the cross, that he's making us into the place where he, where God himself, where his presence is is dwelling with his people. Not not in this building, not in these bricks and in 
these walls, but in His people. Now listen to verse 22 again, but this time with the context of the verses before it. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built. Do you see where I'm getting this language of celebrate what God is building? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together. You see, unity is key. We, we are joined together. We can't be this any other way than if we're joined together. Being joined together grows into a holy temple that we, the church, God's people who have been rescued by the gospel, been made alive through the death and resurrection of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. We are now the place where God's presence is dwelling. We are now the temple. Grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And now verse 22, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is building something, something amazing. And I see it happening. I, I see it happening here in Kansas City at Christ Community. I see it happening in Christ Community, other local churches. I, I see it happening in our partners in Rwanda and Kenya who are planting churches where families and tribes have literally murdered one another, in some cases for generations. And now they're being made into a new people, a holy temple, worshiping together, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, are we a long way off from the building being finished? Yes. Do we have a long way to go? Of course. Is there more pain ahead? Yeah, a lot. You bet. There's more pain ahead in, in being built into this thing that God's making. And can we celebrate what God is building? Absolutely. We must celebrate it. We must celebrate it. Just as remembering the pain and embracing the pain aren't optional, so too celebrating what God is building is not optional. You know, the healthiest of families, they embrace the pain of all that's happened in that family. They embrace that pain and they also celebrate together. The healthiest families do both of those things. That's what we did last Sunday at the congregational meeting and the big party that we had in between. And we, we celebrated together. We celebrated what God is building us into and one of my favorite stories from the congregational meeting uh, and party last Sunday was that one of our pastors noticed a homeless person who attends one of our other campuses socializing with a doctor that attends a different campus. And the beautiful thing about that moment was that the doctor didn't know the guy was homeless, and the homeless guy didn't know he was talking to a doctor. They were just two people who were part of the local church who were family because of the gospel. None of that mattered where they were, their position in society or how other people would have viewed them. But where else does that happen? Where else can both belong equally? Where else can anybody become family? See, it's all because Jesus was cast out of the family for us. You see, on the cross, he became a stranger, an alien, cut off, separated, without hope, so that you and I could be brought near, made into a, a new people, reconciled to God and to one another. 
so that he could make us into a dwelling place, a holy temple, the one place where anybody can become family. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you continue to make us into this one place where anybody can become family? where we remember who we were, where we embrace the pain of, of what is, and, and we look forward to what you are building. Not what, not what we're doing, but what your Spirit is creating in our midst. Would we be the kind of local church that people look at and say, There's, why do those people hang out together? There's no reason they should And would they wonder and give glory to the Father who is in heaven? And would they even be caught up in that glory and wonder and become a part of that story? In Jesus' name, amen.